3: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and
5: go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, "I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore."
4: We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. I ask you not only to win the
1: battle, but to win the war. We're not,
0: We're not in Kansas anymore. Through her eyes if you really want to see something
6: you'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting you're
0: out of order you're out of order the whole trial is out of order you have meddled with the primal forces of nature and you will
1: atone hey there This is your Matt Prophet of the Airwaves, and welcome once again to Radio Free Canada. News, notes, and opinions from the underground for Wednesday, September the 7th, in the year of our Lord, 2022. Some listeners to this program have told me they think I'm unfair to the medical profession, that I dislike doctors. That is, of course, not true. I have doctors on this program all the time. I am deeply disturbed, however, by doctors or anyone Anyone in any profession who uses coercion to get someone to take a vaccine or to do anything, really. Coercion is immoral, it's unethical, and illegal when it comes to medical interventions. That's not controversial. And there are lots of doctors who agree with that statement and have risked their career to speak out against coercion and the vitally important principle of informed consent, which has been largely ignored throughout much of the COVID pandemic. So here's the medical officer of health for Haldeman Norfolk. As an example, someone I have a great deal of respect for, a public health official that I have respect for, Dr. Matt Strauss. And uh, Dr. Strauss appeared recently on the Agenda television program, which is hosted by Steve Pakin, someone also I have a, a lot of time for, one of the most balanced and fair Journalists, journalists working in the mainstream media, also a very nice man. So here's Dr. Strauss speaking out against mandates and lockdowns. Again, he is the medical officer of health for Haldeman Norfolk.
7: We engaged in a lot of, I think, and coercive measures this past winter in like terms what? of uh, vaccine mandates, um, in terms of uh, capacity restrictions, school closures, lockdowns. And what we found was everyone, not everyone, but the majority of Ontarians got COVID anyway. So I don't think that it's ignorant to um, decide
1: not to double down on restrictive measures that have been proven ineffective. Again, Dr. Matt Strauss appearing on the agenda, medical officer of health for Haldeman and Norfolk taking the the correct approach and admitting that the lockdowns and the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates were cruel and largely ineffective. Now appearing on that same program, again, of the agenda, which is a a taxpayer funded television channel TVO uh, appearing on the same panel discussion is a family doctor who also happens to be running for school board trustee up in Ottawa. She's joining the conversation on a zoom call and she's wearing a mask She's also reacting to a statement or a question from host Steve Pakin. Pakin says, in Ontario, we've gotten back to normal. Back to normal. Here's this doctor slash school board candidate's response. I want to start.
6: Uh, okay, Ottawa, let's start with you. It's become clear that the message from the provincial government is we're all getting back to normal now, folks. So let's start there. Are we back to normal yet?
8: No, so the language that you use when you say
1: something like uh, normal is a far-right language of anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, and ableists who uh, disregard the impact of COVID
4: on, on seniors, on children, on educators, on essential workers, on
1: healthcare workers, on our healthcare crisis. Uh, there's nothing normal about getting COVID, repeated infections, children and adults being hospitalized and long COVID. There's nothing normal about taking away the protections and the proactive measures that we had to help to reduce transmission of COVID. And there's nothing normal about uh, getting rid of any kind of isolation requirements, which would have helped to curtail outbreaks in schools, in workplaces and everywhere else that you go. Again, she's delivering this on a zoom call, wearing a mask. So, if you happen to be listening to this program and you live in the Ottawa area, please, please get out and vote for your local school board trustee, but do not reward this kind of unhinged paranoia and ignorance with your vote. Do you really want someone like Dr. Nillie Kaplan Mirth on your school board? Listen to the titanic ignorance falling out of her mouth. How can she say, for example, children are at risk of hospitalization from COVID? How can she talk about schools being a source of COVID outbreaks? How can she say that masks do no harm? She actually said Steve Pakin is far right because he uses terms like normal, or she wasn't referring to Steve Pakin, but she says that's the language of the far right. Back to normal is the language of the far right. We have to stop electing unhinged, ignorant, woke morons Like this, and we have to keep candidates like her as far away from positions of authority as possible. School boards, city town city and town halls, provincial legislatures, you name it. This is the best advertisement I can think of to get out and vote, to listen to this drool drivel. If people like this continue to occupy seats and positions on school boards and city halls and and at Queen's Park, etc., we're doomed. This country is finished. Like me, you're uh, probably thinking we were through listening to incompetent politicians use language like flatten the curve. Remember that one? Flatten the curve. That'll go down in history as one of the most idiotic and futile and disastrous peacetime policy decisions in modern history. Flatten the curve. Well, it's back. It's back. This is the uh, European... Union President Ursula von der Leyen. Have a listen.
2: And this is what is expensive, because in these peak demands, the expensive gas comes into the market. So what we have to do is flatten the curve and uh, avoid the peak demands. We will propose a mandatory target for reducing electricity use at peak hours, and we will work very closely with the member states to achieve this.
1: Flatten the curve, flatten the curve. This time it's not COVID. It's flatten the curve of energy consumption. So the ruling class in Europe have led Europe to the brink of economic and social disaster with their net zero emission suicide mission. They've destroyed their energy, their energy infrastructure on a childish fantasy Namely, that we can quickly pivot from oil and gas and coal and nuclear into wind and solar. And it's all based on the hoax of man-made climate change. And this is why Germans are now paying $3,000 per month for electricity. This is why pubs and supermarkets and other businesses across Great Britain are closing their doors because they can't afford to keep the lights on. And so to cover this colossal blunder... The ruling class blame Vladimir Putin in the war in Ukraine. Now, true, their disastrous policies have empowered Putin. They've painted themselves into a corner, just as President Trump warned would happen. Europe is headed for a very bleak and deadly winter. And it's all on the political class and those who voted them in, incidentally, and the fawning media who run cover for the, uh, the ruling class. And every other member of the death cult of climate change. And what do the ruling class offer the people? Outgoing British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, in one of his last speeches, suggested Britons buy a brand new tea kettle so they can save 10 pounds a year on electricity. And then this, the president of the EU offering up one of the worst and most useless platitudes in history. Flatten the curve. God help us all. God help the people of Europe this winter. All right, coming up on the program today, uh, a year after losing its court battle over the federal carbon tax at Canada's Supreme Court, the Ontario Ford government appears to have capitulated and is raising the price of carbon for industrial polluters under its own emissions program. Jim Carajalios, leader of the New Blue Party of Ontario, will be here, last order of business to discuss. He was... The, uh, the the man who started the original axe the carbon tax campaign several years ago, well, back in I think it was 2016. Axe the carbon tax. That's sort of since been co opted by conservative conservative leadership hopeful Pierre Polyev. Uh, more embalmers in the U.S. are reporting bizarre blood clots amid the ongoing COVID vax campaign. Art Moore from WND has that story. Also, an hour two. Meanwhile, our crime minister appears as if he's getting ready for never-ending boosters. Never-ending boosters. Andrew Lawton from True North. We'll be here with that one also in hour or two. This hour, we'll push back against the cult of climate change with Tony Heller. Uh, but coming up first, my guest says after decades of futile efforts to reform Canada... It's now time for Alberta to strike out on its own to form a new independent country. Michael Wagner is the senior Alberta columnist for the Western Standard and the Alberta Report, and he's next. The Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Wednesday, September the 7th. Facta non verba. We're
0: back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
1: All right, as promised, Michael Wagner, senior Alberta columnist for the Western Standard and Alberta Report, he's based in Edmonton, and uh, he has a PhD in political science from the University of Alberta. Has authored several books on Alberta politics and the independence movement. Michael making a you know a pretty convincing argument that Alberta has given it a a pretty good a pretty good go at uh, Confederation. And of course, they were dragged into Confederation. They didn't get to vote on uh, joining Canada, like, say, for example, Newfoundland did in the 1940s, 1949. Uh, Rupert's Land, which was owned by Hudson Bay, was basically purchased uh, by Canada. So Albertans and everyone else in the West really didn't have much of a say, which may have led to the, uh, probably led to the, uh, Louis, Louis Riel Rebellion. Uh, and just kind of, Michael, in your stead, and I apologize for not being able to get you on. I'm just going to kind of, uh, until we can fix this, just uh, kind of working through your, uh, your piece in the Alberta Report and also the Western Standard about Alberta's uh, long list of grievances. I mean, we can talk about, you know, we don't have time to discuss them all. Uh, but, of course, we had Pierre Trudeau, the, the current crime minister's father, back in 1980, introducing the National, national Energy Programme and again energy and resources this is a provincial jurisdiction and we've seen constant incursions by the uh, the federal government into this area of course alberta should have made out quite nicely during the energy crisis back in the uh, the early 1970s 1973 uh so what did the federal government do they slapped a uh, an export tax so the People of Alberta couldn't benefit from exporting their oil to the United States and elsewhere. And they made um, or they they uh, they lowered the price of oil so that the people in eastern Canada would benefit. Now we move that up to uh, today. We have, of course, Bill C-69, the No More Pipelines Bill. We've got Bill C-48, the Oil Tanker Moratorium Act. We have a government that is. Doing everything possible, everything humanly possible to destroy the oil and gas industry in this country. Alberta just turned a 13 billion plus budget surplus. Be curious, you know, how much of of that money is going to benefit the people of Alberta? And how much of that money is going to be shipped east through this equalization payment formula? oh there you are michael in my uh my uh, clumsy awkward way i was just trying to itemize some of the grievances uh that alberta uh that albertans have have had for many many years and i was talking uh, in your absence about bill c69 and bill c48 and the federal government's deliberate attempts to destroy oil and gas in this country we just had the german chancellor visiting um had the uh the, uh, the prime minister had the good sense to sign off on that deal. I, I, I was told by the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy that could have meant a third of a trillion dollars in revenue uh, for Canada every year. But, um, of course, uh, um, the prime minister ha- is on a suicide mission to net zero emissions. So I don't know if we'll ever see that deal. Um, we just have about a minute here before we break. Unfortunately, Michael, we'll bring you back in the next segment and talk some more but i was asking about the, the for example another here's a, another grievance alberta 13 billion dollar surplus this year 13 billion plus how much of that money is albert are albertans going to see and how much is that going to be through this equalization payment formula uh, you know end up in quebec so that they can provide seven dollar a day a, a day daycare for their citizens
7: well actually i think that 13 billion um surplus actually is the Alberta government surplus i think that's after other, other- other okay. funds have been taken off. So, <clears throat> excuse me, there is a big fiscal transfer to the east, but I think that 13 billion is actually in the pocket of the Alberta government. So, they're actually going to use that to pay down
1: Alberta's debt. Ah, all right. Well, that's that's one upside I suppose. Um, it doesn't seem to matter though who's in power, whether it's or the, it's the Liberals and we talked about the National Energy Program in 1980 with with Trudeau. We've talked about the current Trudeau destroying oil and gas, the industry. Uh, You haven't made out much better with conservative governments either, have you?
7: Well, like somewhat better. I mean, the problem is still there. The Conservatives are on a relative scale, they're relatively better than than the Liberals. But still, especially like in the 1980s with Brian Mulroney, we really thought once we got rid of Trudeau and the Liberals in the 80s, we thought that the Conservative government would be much more favorable to the West. But there was a really big issue in 1986 when the Mulroney government awarded a CF-18 maintenance contract to Montreal, even though Winnipeg had won that contract. And that was the single biggest issue that led to the creation of the Reform Party in the late 1980s. We really felt a sense of betrayal because all Alberta's MPs were conservative MPs. They had been for, for many elections. So we thought Mulroney was our guy, and he was going to protect us. And of course, many other Westerners like outside of Alberta had also voted for him. So we felt very much betrayed when he awarded that CF-18 contract to Montreal, not because Montreal had won it on, on merit, but Winnipeg had won it on merit, and he gave it to Montreal for political consideration. So we could tell right there that regardless of which political party was in power... Whichever party is in power still has to cater to Central Canada and to Quebec in order to stay in power. So they're willing to stick it to us regardless of how hard, how much we support them. They will stick it to us when it's in their best interests. So we, so I argue that we cannot rely on the Conservative Party, even the modern Conservative Party, to defend our interests. Because, I mean, even though, like I say, relatively speaking, the Conservatives were better. But the best they can offer us is a reprieve, actually, from the Liberals anyway, even if they are due as the best they can. Because um, once the Conservatives are gone, the Liberals will be back in. So, even under a best case scenario Conservative government, it's just a temporary reprieve. So, Alberta is going to continue to face um, the kind of problems we were having from the federal government unless we take some other kind of action because the, the electoral system benefits central Canada because that's where the population is. I mean that's fair enough the sense that the, where the voters are that's where the power will be and we're not that center. and so the, the voters will uh, the, the majority of the voters will vote in a government that does not represent our interests and will in some cases like the current government act against our interests. And so we need to I argue we need to become independent if we want a government our own government to
1: work on our behalf and not against us. Uh, Michael, we'll take a quick time out and uh, come back and discuss further. Michael Wagner, senior Alberta columnist for the Western Standard and the Alberta Report, arguing that after decades of futile efforts to reform Canada, it's now time for Alberta to strike out on its own and form a new independent country. Back with more of our conversation right after these.
0: Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga 960 AM. It's the
1: Richard Sarah Show. All right, we're back with Michael Wagner, senior Alberta columnist for the Western Standard and Alberta Report. Incidentally, you can read uh, his piece at uh, westernstandard.news. Please support independent media. They're really they're, they're all we have. Western Standard. Uh, dot news, And again, the uh, title, Canada Cannot Be Fixed. It's Time for Alberta Independence. So it's been 35 years since Preston Manning started the Reform Party, as you point out in your article. Of course, his father, Ernest Manning, Premier of Alberta for something like a quarter century. Uh, so uh, 35 years, uh, you know, to, to try and convince Ottawa, you know, to, to bring Alberta or give Alberta a better deal in confederation.
2: is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Well, I I think there'd be a number of reasons. If I could just go back for a
7: minute, like there was, the the Reform Party was formed about 35 years ago, as you point out, and that was our best effort at trying to reform Canada. But I do mention in the article, there were previous proposals from other writers, serious people, the first one being John Barr, who was actually um, executive assistant to Alberta's education minister. And then later on, Senator Ernest Manning, like after he was premier, he was senator, and he wrote a, a, a book with a very with some prominent colleagues, um, a political scientist and a former leader of the Liberal Party BC, all these people, and there were others who were putting forward proposals, like serious proposals. They were serious people, influential people saying, we need to make changes or else the West is going to need to get out. Now, the Reform Party was the biggest. It was kind of the apex of the Western movement to try and reform Canada. If you remember, the Reform Party's motto was, the West wants in. It's like, we were not getting represented. We wanted representation. And the major proposal for that was the Triple E Senate. We believe that we get a Senate that was, you know, elected by the people with equal representation from each province and had actual, had real power, equal, uh, that could uh, actualize power. If it had those three things, uh, the West and Alberta could have representation in the national government in a way that it never had before. And that way we could prevent policies like the National Energy Program and the CF-18 um, issue from happening. Um, But this kind of proposal was not accepted at all, it seemed to me, by anybody in, in Central Canada um, the, the reforms are just too big. There's, there's too much there for people to get. And, and provinces like Ontario and Quebec would have to give up power for something like the Tripoli Senate to be adopted. So that's not the kind of thing provinces aren't very willing to give up power. So, So that was a huge obstacle was the unwillingness of Central Canada even to consider those proposals. Over time, however, the Reform Party became more and more interested in, in becoming a national government and not just a Western party. So they converted themselves into the Canadian Alliance and then eventually joined with the Progressive Conservative Party to form the new Conservative Party. So there was, it, it got distracted. Its original Western base was to get reforms to get West, the West End. But over time, they've, came to believe that well they couldn't get any reforms done unless they actually formed the national government. But in order to form the national government, they had to compromise on certain initial policy preferences and certain um, emphases, and in doing so, they kind of lost that Western emphasis. But but the key to it was that here, this big thrust to reform the country for the benefit of the West petered out and faded out and went away and didn't achieve those goals. And I, I don't blame the party for that. I mean, it was resistance from central Canada that, that did that.
1: And, but this is sorry. Go ahead. If you want to say, something. Well, I just, yeah, I just wanted to jump in here and, and, um, and ask you about uh, UCP uh, leadership, hopeful Danielle Smith, who has proposed this sovereignty act and whether you've had a chance to look at that. What do you think of that proposal? And also your thoughts on the lieutenant um, governor in Alberta? taking this unprecedented um, step of saying, well, she's going to look at that carefully and and may not. I mean, that's it's supposed to be that's kind of a rubber stamp position. Right. Uh, She said, well, no, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, We just we don't have a lot of time here. And I I apologize for the earlier technical difficulties. We'll get you back on uh, and we'll talk uh, again about this. But uh, just your thoughts on the Sovereignty Act.
7: Well, like there's beneficial aspects to the sovereignty act, but I compare it like my proposal or what I advocate is for an independence referendum, and I said the independence referendum is superior to the sovereignty act for a couple of reasons. One is the sovereignty act is designed to be deliberately unconstitutional. I mean, the people behind it are very good people, and they want to reform Canada. This is a key thing that people need to realize in the east is that the sovereignty act, although it sounds radical, it's actually an attempt to keep Alberta within Canada. They're trying to head off a separatist impulse by creating a constitutional crisis that will lead to benefits for Alberta. And that's the whole purpose. So it's good in that sense. Um, it's, it's, it's There's some ambiguities to it, though, in my view, because what will the constitutional crisis be over? Like, the, the, you know, it depends on, on what happens in the future as to what that would be. And they can't really describe that. It's a little bit, um, like I say, it's a little bit ambiguous and hard to understand in some respects, whereas our independence referendum an advantage over the Sovereignty Act is an independence referendum is constitutional. The Supreme Court ruled in 1998 the secession reference case that a province can hold a referendum and if that if the referendum has a clear question and a clear majority of people vote in favour of it, then that province can... Uh, negotiate with There's something you can thank Quebec for, Michael.
1: Exactly. You can thank Quebec for.
7: Yeah, yeah, well, I don't often agree with Supreme <laughs> Court decisions, but actually that one I read it and it was very quite very well reasoned actually. So so I, the, the idea of the referendum is constitutional whereas the sovereignty act isn't and I think that gives it a real leg up because you want to pursue it's better to pursue something that's constitutional if that's an option than something that's not constitutional. It's also much easier for people to understand a referendum, vote yes or no on this or that than than what the sovereignty act might bring like we really don't know what the future would bring when we adopt the Sovereignty Act. We know the direction we're going, but we can't really see the road clearly ahead. So I think those two advantages uh, for the for the referendum um, are, are very clear to me.
1: Uh, Michael, we don't have any more time, but I, I want to bring you back on because we, uh, we didn't uh, get to speak for very long. Would you be good for that? Yes, that'd be great. All right. My producer, Declan, will set that up. Michael Wagner, Senior Alberta Columnist for the Western Standard and Alberta Report based in Edmonton. And again, you can go to westernstandard.news and uh, find michael's column canada cannot be fixed it's time for alberta independence thanks again michael we'll talk again soon all right when we come back we'll push back against the cult of climate change you're listening
0: to the richard sarich show on new stock saga 960 a.m (laughs)
1: The Cult of Climate Change on The Richard Serrett Show. All right, don't look now. There's a doomsday glacier in our future. Ooh, a doomsday glacier. Here to tell us more, uh, Tony Heller, founder of RealClimateScience.com. Hey, Tony, how are you? I'm good, Richard. How about you? Oh, I'm all I'm all frightened, uh, losing sleep about this doomsday glacier, uh, supposedly uh, nicknamed because of its high risk of collapse. This is uh, uh, in Antarctica and uh, its threat to global sea level. So tell me about this. uh, It's called the Thwaites Glacier. They're saying it's capable of raising sea levels by several feet and it's eroding along its underwater base in the Antarctica as the planet warms. Should we be worried? I ask rhetorically. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling you might say that, Tony.
9: Here's a headline from the Washington Post from 11 months ago. The South Pole just had its most severe cold season on record. Um, the winter of last year was extremely cold in Antarctica, and it was the coldest on record. And this winter has been similarly cold in. Um, it 's been extremely cold in Antarctica. The cold air has been going to places like Australia and South Africa and parts of South America and making it extremely cold. Australia's had a very cold winter um because of cold Antarctic so the whole story doesn 't make any sense to begin with but but if we go back to the actual story itself here 's a headline from The Washington Post yesterday. They do say the size of Florida is disintegrating faster than thought, And they refer to an article in um, the journal Nature Geoscience. If you actually go and look at that article, it says the exact opposite. It says that the rate of retreat of that glacier is, is only half of what it was at other times during the last 200 years. So what's actually happened is that the retreat of the glacier has slowed down. And the Washington Post is trying to propagate it as it's sped up. It's like either they're just desperately lying or they didn't actually bother to read the paper they were writing the article about. This has been going on for a long time. You can find articles like this from the last few years. No glacier could rewrite the global coastline. Um, but if we go back 90 years ago, um, there the were articles 90 years ago about how the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, the Ross Ice Shelf of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, had retreated 30 miles before 1932 since it was first discovered by Sir James Ross, and they said that the retreat had been going on for centuries. So what they're referring to is nothing new and has nothing to do with global warming. And then one article which is particularly interesting is from 1977, 45 years ago, where the program National Science Foundation program manager um, for glaciology said that we're seeing that the West Antarctic ice sheet may collapse, but it has nothing to do with climate. It's just the dynamics of unstable ice. so never this has been going on for centuries, never had anything to do with climate, and they're just making up fake story about it now, which As is normally the case with all climate alarmist articles, nothing to do with science, nothing to do with history, nothing to do with reality. They're just trying to scare people with dishonest
1: fear Okay, so very quickly, because we have to take a time out, we'll come back and discuss some other things. But um, when uh, part of an ice shelf or ice sheet breaks off, and I guess they call that calving, and it separates, Yeah. That doesn't necessarily lead to a rise in sea levels, right? Because just like ice cubes in your glass, uh, when they melt, you know, the water doesn't flow over because of displacement. But what if the the piece of ice that breaks off is not already, you know, in the water, it breaks off from the actual continent itself? Could that uh, significantly raise sea levels?
9: Well, Well, the argument that they're making is that when these ice shelves break off, they're what's keeping the glacier that's on the land from sliding into the ocean, and that if, this, if it breaks off in the glacier that's on land, will slide into the ocean, and, and that's what will raise sea levels, is the argument they're making. And can that happen? Uh, so Theoretically, it could. Probably not. In reality, um, usually glaciers move pretty slowly. I mean, more likely that it would just replace the existing I shelf which broke off. But I, you know, in, you know, in their wild imagination, they, they, they have all kinds of different catastrophes which sort of could occur um, if, if something went wrong. You know, you can imagine all kinds of catastrophes which could occur if you don't actually base your beliefs on science. You can get scared about just about anything.
1: All right. So the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica is not a doomsday glacier. Tony Heller, founder of realclimatescience.com. Incidentally, Tony, you're making a video about this. We'll tell people how to watch it. We'll come back and discuss. Uh, interesting. In California, they're blaming uh, the uh, the heat wave out there for power outages. And of course, in Europe, they're blaming Vladimir Putin. <laughs> we'll come back and discuss on the other side. Don't go away.
0: Back to the conversation on the Richard Serrett show. Mm-hmm. News talk saga, 960 AM. <laughs>
1: we are back with Tony Heller the founder of realclimatescience.com and we're pushing back against the death cult of climate change we were talking earlier about the doomsday glacier so called in uh, antarctica the thwaites glacier that the uh, global warming bedwetters are saying is capable of raising sea levels by several feet tony disabused us of that notion quite nicely tony you made you're making a video about this very subject at real uh, that can be seen at realclimatescience.com correct
9: Yeah. Yeah. I actually already made it this
1: morning. You can see it there now or on my YouTube channel. All right. Uh, Have a listen to this. This is uh, Governor Gavin Newsom uh, telling Californians they need to step up and flatten the curve, not the covid curve. This is a peak energy consumption curve.
6: California and many other western states are experiencing simply unprecedented temperatures. In fact, this heat wave is on track to be both the hottest and the longest on record for the state and many parts of the west for the month of September. Californians, you've stepped up to help in a big way to keep the lights on so far, but we're heading we're heading to the worst part of this heat wave and the risk for outages is real and it's immediate. These triple-digit temperatures throughout much of our state are, are leading, not surprisingly, to record demand on the energy grid. Every Everyone has to do their part to help step up for just a few more days. Individuals, the state, industries, business, all doing their part to help reduce strain on the grid. Now, here's specifically what you can do in the early morning hours, particularly tomorrow and the next day or so. Pre-cool your home. Run your air conditioning earlier in the day when more power is available. And we encourage you to close your windows and blinds to keep your home cool as well. And today and tomorrow afternoon after 4 p.m., in particular 4 p.m., please turn your thermostat up to 78 degrees or higher and avoid to the extent possible using any really large appliances.
1: There you go, Tony. Uh, the governor blaming the heat wave for the uh, the blackouts that are coming in California, which are about to become a regular part of life there. <laughs> Nothing to do with uh, a heat wave or climate change. It just has to do with uh, poor energy policy. Agree?
9: Well, first of all, he's spreading just gross misinformation about the climate uh, so from along the California coast, September and October are the hottest months um, because that's when the Pacific Ocean warms up. Um, October is actually when they have the most hot days along the coast. Um, but in, in September of 1913, um, they had a much worse heat wave in, in California. Like the hottest temperature recorded at Berkeley, California, was 106 degrees Fahrenheit on September 16, 1913, which is 18 degrees warmer than any temperature forecast this week in at Berkeley. So it's much hotter than there were temperatures. Almost the entire state of California was over 100 or under 10 degrees um, around that the middle of September, 1913. So statistics were, were completely fake. Um, 1913 was also the year when California set the world's record temperature of 134 degrees Fahrenheit, which has never been matched. Since. Furnace Creek, Furnace
1: Creek, so, Death Valley.
9: Well, well, yeah, that was that was actually a Greenland ranch is where that temperature was recorded. Oh. But it was also it wasn't it was Death Valley. Um, so, yeah, so. This is not an unprecedented heat wave. California's had much worse heat waves during September than than what they're having this year. And, and, and the obvious thing, of course, is that he shut down the coal-fired power plants. He shut down the natural gas power plants. He's shutting down the nuclear power plants. They don't have enough electricity because of actions that he's taken. Um, and now, he's, of course, he's trying to blame the disaster he created on... Fake, using fake statistics on global warming, which simply isn't true. They have a lot of people in California, they don't have enough electricity because they've shut down their supply, so they don't have enough electricity. And he's just lying about everything, like Democrats do. That's their. That's
1: the way they operate. Right, and 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 of course, in California, they're at the forefront of the of uh, states in the U.S. pushing for. Uh, electric vehicles I don't know what the percentage I think it's the highest percentage anywhere in the u s uh, of electric vehicles he wants more people plugging into the grid with their electric cars and yet they can't even uh they can't even avoid blackouts now because of a uh, you know an uptick in consumption because of air conditioning yeah
9: you and know, the state gave a warning a few days ago not to re not to recharge your car because there is not enough electricity
2: before
1: And that's so exactly what they want. That's exactly what they want, yeah. right? So if, imagine everybody now has an electric vehicle, and today they say you can't go anywhere because um, we're shutting down the grid or the grid is about to shut down. Now they've got you. Now they've got you. Your your, uh, your mo- mobility has been forever, your freedom to mobility has been forever surrendered to authorities. Um well, it's worse, it's, worse, it's worse than that, Richard. Um, so last
9: winter, there was a huge snowstorm around Washington, D.C., and tens of thousands of vehicles got stranded out there for about 24 hours, including Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia got stuck on, on, the, on the highway for about 24 hours. And so imagine, of course, the vast majority of those people were driving gasoline powered vehicles. So once that ran out of gas, all they needed to do was bring around a tow truck with a a gas can and they could refill the vehicles and they could leave. But what if they were driving electric vehicles? They could have had tens of thousands of electric vehicles out, stuck out on the road, and you can't just bring a gas can and fill them up. They have to be towed. So Washington, D.C. could have been shut down for weeks after that happened had people been driving electric vehicles. So they're potentially creating massive catastrophes um, Which are unlike anything we've ever had to deal with before, because there's so many different problems with electric vehicles. Um, it, it's it, which is, of course they're not communicating and they don't want people to know about.
1: Right. Someone. The under-
9: other thing, is a lot of a lot of people would have frozen to death too, because when their battery goes down in their electric vehicle, then they can't get heat anymore. Exactly. People relying on where people were relying on, on the heat from their gasoline-powered engine to stay alive.
1: Exactly. Well, someone made an excellent point on Twitter today, and that is with electric vehicles. Remember, the battery is not a power source. It's a energy storage device. And most often, that energy for electric vehicles really is coming from coal. <laughs> Coal-fired plants or, uh, or uh, natural gas-fired plants. Uh, So the electric vehicle is not really an electric vehicle. Uh, Tony, always appreciate your time. And again, the uh, website, realclimatescience.com. Look for him on uh, YouTube, uh, NewTube and BitChu. Tony, we'll talk again next week.
2: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
1: Yeah, thanks, Richard. All right, when we come back, Hour 2, Jim Carajalios, leader of the New Blue, will talk about uh, the Ford government capitulating, once again, raising the price of carbon for industry in this province. That'll come back, and uh, that'll cost us all more, folks. Art Moore at WND will talk about more and more embalmers Coming out reporting bizarre blood clots amid the uh, the latest COVID vax campaign. And uh, Andrew Lawton from True North will be here uh, to talk about Trudeau. Appears to be getting ready for us, uh, getting us ready for never ending boosters. Hour two awaits. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want
3: all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window,
5: open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore!
4: We must not allow
1: ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war.
0: we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole
6: parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of
0: order!
9: And you
1: will atone And welcome to Hour 2 of the Richard Serrett Show And if you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot But don't despair, still plenty of great programming coming your way Jim Carajalios, leader of the New Blue Party of Ontario, will be here He'll weigh in on, uh, well, the uh, the Ford government Capitulating mm-hmm. Once again, raising the price of carbon for industry in this province under its own emissions program. This after uh, a year later, after uh, losing its court battle with the uh, the Supreme Court. And uh, Jim Kirahalios uh, was the uh, the founder, really, of the original acts the carbon tax grassroots movement, going back uh, to I, I believe twenty sixteen. So uh, clearly, six years ahead of Pierre Polyev, who's now. Sort of co-opted that uh, that phrase. Axe the carbon tax. Art Moore from WND will be here, and uh, among other things, we'll talk about this disturbing trend. You probably have seen these—they're rather uh, unsettling, disturbing videos on social media from embalmers, and I guess medical examiners, mainly embalmers, reporting these incredible-sized blood clots taken from uh, dead bodies and uh, I guess raising red flags about possible connection between these blood clots taken from these cadavers and the 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 ongoing push for COVID vaccinations, the COVID vax campaign. Again, Art Moore will be here with that one. Is our uh, crime minister preparing us for never-ending boosters. Here he is at a, uh, I believe this was a recent event in Winnipeg. Have a listen.
4: COVID's not done with us yet. We might want to be done with it. But it's still around. And yes, we have a lot more tools, a lot more understanding, a lot more knowledge on how to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe that have allowed us to get back to regular life in a lot of ways for a whole bunch of people. But we also know that as winter comes and as people get pushed back indoors, there is a real risk of another serious wave of COVID. One of the best things we can do to prevent that way, if prevent the pressure on our healthcare systems, prevent provinces from having to take decisions around restrictions and mandates, is to ensure that everyone is up to date in their vaccination. The recommendation is, you know, you should uh, be up to date in your vaccinations if you have a, have had a dose within six months. Everyone who has been a while since their vaccination, today's vaccination, should look at the fact that we have new vaccines coming out this month that are tailored ...against Omicron that will provide better protection and everyone should get out and get vaccinated. If we are able to hit that 80, 85, 90 percent of Canadians up to date in their vaccinations, we'll have a much better winter with much less need for the kinds of restrictions
1: and rules that were so problematic for everyone over the past years. Wow. What is he playing at? Uptake for the booster at 80 to 90 percent? He's dreaming... Andrew Lawton, True North News reporter, host of The Andrew Lawton Show and author of the Amazon bestseller, The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. Welcome back, Andrew. How are you? Hey, I'm good, Richard. How are you? Always good to talk to you. Likewise. Likewise. Uh, so you talked about this recently uh, on your program about Trudeau getting us ready for never ending uh, boosters. What, when he's saying, you know, th- there's a very serious threat of another serious COVID wave, where is he getting his data? I mean, where is that coming from?
8: Well, I mean, it, again, it's 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 always trusting the the, the political science. That's the uh, the mo of this government. And I think one of the key challenges here is that you have to look at the changing language. Remember when fully vaccinated was the thing we had to strive for, and now fully vaccinated doesn't exist. There's no such thing. It's it's all about up-to-date vaccination. And and the challenge with that language is that it's basically putting us into this situation where, by the government's own admission, we're we're never actually going to get to that magic point where we can go back to normal. And and the big problem is that he's dangling normalcy in front of us as as though freedom and normality are are things that he gets to decide when we experience and, and not things we get to decide when we experience
1: Right. And um, he's saying, well, you know, you should consider getting boosted, you know, six months out from your last uh, vaccine. Although the the Canada Health Advisory Panel is suggesting even every three months. Yeah, they are. And I think that's actually a, a
8: very key thing that you've identified there. And, and there are a couple of problems I'll point out. Uh, for starters, it, we we just know that the goalposts have always moved. And, and you know, I was reminded today of this funny little clip I saw. Of Ursula von der Leyen, uh, the uh, chairwoman of the European Commission, talking about uh, the need to flatten the curve on electricity usage, and I'm like, well, flatten yeah. the curve. On, where, where where have we heard that before? <laughs> exactly. I mean, all all the cliches, flatten the curve, just two weeks, just two weeks longer. We know now that they're they're not being given to us in in good faith. So I I, I do feel that we are looking at what's going to be an, an endless carousel of these restrictions because all the evidence to date tells us that's where the government's going with this.
1: So uh, this idea that he wants to get booster rates up to 80 or 90 percent, the last time I looked, uh, the number of Canadians that have taken the fourth shot. So that's the, the initial two plus two boosters, 18 plus, 18 years old and plus, it's about 12 percent. Uh, I mean, to get from 12 percent to 80 or 90, uh, that's going to take a whole lot of coercion, I'm guessing, or
8: ex- I, I- I think the 12%, if I'm not mistaken, is for fourth doses. For for yeah. third doses, we're, we're somewhere in the realm of, of three shots. Now, for some people, that third dose is up to date. For other people, that third dose has effectively already expired now because it's not been within the last six months. So, so you are right. I, I mean, this is a big problem that we are, are seeing and, and that a lot of people, they – got the first two doses because the COVID situation was a lot different. They very much felt like, uh, you know, they they were threatened by it. Some people got it because they needed it for work or they wanted to travel and all of that. But the booster uptake has just not been there. The COVID situation has changed. Enthusiasm has waned. Uh, it hasn't been mandated anywhere. So there are going to be some people that if they're forced to, for whatever reason, they will do it. But a lot of people won't. And, and I don't know what's going to happen when the government talks about it. And, and even in that clip you played from Trudeau in the full clip, they talk about, well, to avoid restrictions, this is what we need. Mm-hmm. So it's basically we want you to voluntarily get up to the point where 80, 80 to 90 percent of you are fully vaccinated. But if you don't, we will not hesitate to mandate it anyway.
1: Exactly. Exactly. How much of this has to do with Trudeau? Uh, And I believe when it's all said and done, it's something like 400 million doses uh, that have been ordered from the various manufacturers from the beginning when they they first rolled out uh, until 2023 or 2024. Something like 400 million doses were on the hook for those are going to spoil. Those are going to have to get thrown out. How much of this has to do with him not wanting to look like a complete fool and being you know, on the hook for spending billions and billions and billions of dollars for vaccines that'll end up getting tossed.
8: Yeah, it's like we already paid for them anyway, so why don't you all get uh, get vaccinated, get your fourth shot, your fifth shot? I, I don't know if that's the argument. I, I think that what Trudeau was doing and what you know a lot of countries around the world, in fairness, were doing was the the same as you know what Canadians were doing with you know hoarding toilet paper. It's like, well, we don't know when we're going to be able to get it again, so uh, let's just buy all the vaccines we can, and you know we'll buy this one and that one, and, and then that's that. I I think that you know we ended up with it. The reality is, if we do have this massive wave. Of, uh, of of mandates. Or, and, you know, a lot of people, I, I think, are just not going to go along with it this time. And a lot of them are going to go
1: to waste anyway, if I'm being perfectly candid. I hope you're right, Andrew. I, I hope I hope finally uh, we will stand up and and just refuse to comply or make it very what's that old saying? Make it very difficult to be governed. Yeah,
8: I, I guess that's the reality. I mean, the government tries to claim that it never made vaccination compulsory because you always had a choice. But, you know, that choice really doesn't exist when your livelihood's being taken away, your right to travel, to enter the country without quarantine, to leave the country is being taken away. Uh, so I, I do think that the government has tried to make things very difficult on the unvaccinated. So I'd say you're right. Absolutely. People should make it very difficult on government.
1: And, uh, of course, we have a big court case. It was delayed. It was supposed to be heard this month, but it's uh, going to be heard next month on the uh, the uh, COVID or the, uh, the the travel ban, the mandate for uh, travel. So we'll, um, that will obviously uh, have um, uh, a huge impact, I guess, on terms of how the government uh, tries to invoke new measures if there is another wave of uh, COVID. Andrew Lawton stays with us. With us, True North news reporter, host of The Andrew Lawton Show, author of The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. We'll take a quick timeout, come back and uh, discuss further. Don't go away.
0: Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show
1: on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. So we're talking about um, our crime minister seemingly preparing us for uh, never-ending boosters. Uh, and uh, Andrew Lawton is staying with us from True North, host of The Andrew Lawton Show, again, author of The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. I just wanted to shift gears a little bit. I know this is an older story, but Andrew, you were one of the first, I believe, who reported on at the University of uh, Western Ontario. We were, you know, we've been talking about the, uh, the vaccine mandates there that have been pushed back now to January of 2023, but you were one of the first, I believe, who reported on... One of the exemptions that that university was offering, uh, and that was if you donated or were thinking about donating to the university, you would be exempt from taking a a vaccine. Um, To my way of thinking, that's, that's extortion, isn't it?
8: No, I I think you actually need to uh, be a little bit more up to date with the science here, Richard. When you uh, have a check in your hand, it actually forms an antimicrobial (laughs) shield around you. And uh, even thinking of that check actually forms that shield. So, no, I I think it's actually it's this anti-science rhetoric that is uh, plunging us into lockdowns and restrictions at at great lengths.
1: (laughs) Okay, an antimicrobial shield around my check. I I, I,
8: I don't make the science. I'm
1: I'm just uh, forced to interpret the data myself. Okay, but all kidding aside, isn't that isn't that like a definition of extortion? You give me money and, you know, I'll look the other way.
8: Yeah. And and it's proof that it's never been about the science. And it's it's always about who they can get away with controlling and who they want to control. And, you know, they know they can do it with students because a lot of them don't have any other options. But with their big donors, which are the lifeblood of a university, uh, they're all saying, oh, no, 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 the mandate doesn't apply to you. It, it applies if you're, a you know, an athlete that uh, wants to play for a Western team, but it doesn't apply if you're a, a donor that wants to come by for a big giant check presentation. And, and you know, it's, it's just it's proof that they don't even believe leave what they're selling.
1: Uh, the fact that they have, um, I don't know, not backed off, but they've extended the deadline for the, uh, you know, to comply with the vaccine mandate to January. Um, what do you think? Is that, uh, are, are they, you know, getting some, uh, Assembling a legal defense here, because Lisa Bildy, who's been on the program and a a lawyer down in London, is representing a number of students and parents to take the university to court. Is this a delaying tactic or is the university blinking? What's going on here?
8: Yeah, it's a bit of a tough one because they're still keeping the two dose mandates in place so that the existing mandate from last year is still there. So they're not backing off in a way that I, I would give them any credit, but they are extending the booster mandate. And I I think that means they really understand that they, they really have miscalculated profoundly the number of students they can force to do this and, and as quickly as they wanted to.
1: So getting back to the, you know, the the exemptions and the uh, if you donate or if you're thinking about at some point in the future, donating you're exempt, I mean, that that can't That's not going to play well if there's some kind of a court case here. Uh, You know, that's going to totally undermine their entire rationale, isn't it? Yeah, I'd hope so.
8: And I I think in court, it it really does. uh, It it would be something I'd advise were I a lawyer to say, uh, focus on these exemptions, because if it's safe for certain people to do it, it's safe for others to do it.
1: How do we get a copy of uh, your fabulous Amazon bestseller?
8: Uh, you will have a Globe and Mail bestseller and a Toronto Star bestseller, too. But you can get it on uh, at Sutherland House Books website. You can also get it from Amazon directly. The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. And uh, how do we watch the Andrew Lawton show? TNC. News and the work of all my other colleagues is there as well for you. All right.
1: Andrew, always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Richard. Andrew Lawton, True North, TNC.news, TNC.news, please support independent media. Uh, I want to play this clip in anticipation of uh, Art Moore is coming up next from WND. We're going to talk about all of these disturbing cases um, being publicized or uh, by um, embalmers, primarily in the U.S., reporting removing these incredibly long blood clots from cadavers. Uh, and they they are linking this to the um, uh, to the vaccine. Uh, this is a um, a story about a high school student down in Toledo, and uh, had to uh, quit his. Love of football had to quit his football career in high school because of six-foot blood clots found in his legs.
9: It started on August 1st. Um, his dad took him to the emergency room. He was having severe pain in his back and legs. I
1: was a bit confused. I didn't know really what was happening.
4: And he just told me that he was just wasn't feeling good.
0: The night before Wauseon's first team practice, junior Caden Clymer unexpectedly had to be
1: taken to Toledo Children's Hospital. His calves were actually swelled up four inches larger in circumference than they are now, so he was very
4: uncomfortable. I just wanted to go home, honestly. I I didn't really care what they did to me. I just wanted to go home.
0: Full of pain and uncertainty, Clymer received word that he had blood clots in his legs.
4: I was really sad. Uh, I was crying and I was upset because I played football my whole life and I I just want to play with my friends. Six feet
0: of blood clots were removed and because of the blood thinners, he now has to take his football career over. Wow.
1: All right. Uh, Art Moore, author at WND, is next with that story. Stay with us. The Bull Session
0: continues on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
1: All right, earlier I played a clip uh, from a high school football player in Toledo who had to quit football because doctors discovered six-foot clots, six-foot blood clots in his legs. And uh, now, because he'll be on blood thinners, I guess for the rest of his life, he can no longer play football. His love, his dreams crushed. And, um, I mean... I don't know if he was uh, vaccinated. I'm I'm going to presume that he was. I don't know his status. Double vax, triple vax, quadruple vax. Uh, is there a connection between these six foot blood clots in his legs and the vaccines? I can't say for sure, but we're hearing more and more of this. It's the big elephant in the room. Hey, look, there's a big pink elephant in the room. Ah, just ignore it. Well, we can't do that. We can't do that. So this was a case of a, um, thankfully he's still alive, uh, but we're hearing about and hearing from embalmers, right? Embalmers in funeral homes reporting that they're removing these huge fibrous blood clots in many of their cases since the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines. Here with more on that story is our good friend Art Moore, author at WND. Co-author of the best-selling book, See Something, Say Nothing. Hey, Art, welcome back. How are you? Hey, doing fine. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. So um, how how prevalent is this? I mean, how many embalmers, and many of us have seen these rather disturbing videos on social media where they actually show us, you know, the blood clots they have just removed from, these, from their cases, from these bodies. But how prevalent is it?
3: Yeah. And it is hard to know. But um, what we do know is that the embalmers who have spoken out, they say, hey, we've talked to our colleagues uh, and in some cases, you know, dozens of colleagues who are seeing the same thing and, and they're afraid to speak out. And and it's, you know, in the whole context of of everything related to COVID-19 going against the establishment grain. But in addition to these embalmers, um, there are people like Dr. Ryan Cole, who runs a diagnostic clinic, and his job is to uh, analyze, uh, you know, these different specimens that come in uh, post-mortem, and, uh, and he's he's seen this as well. And and he also, you know, sees a direct connection between the vaccines and and uh, these clots, and, and that is that the spike protein tends to... Um, produce uh, 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 well it's a protein itself and it's 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 causing inflammation and and, and causing these clots uh, he, he believes and the interesting thing is that uh, you know initially when there were different uh, people like dr. Robert Malone who were sounding the alarm on this there was huge pushback no 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 this this uh, synthetic spike protein that the vi- the vaccine, Produces it. It it just remains local, and for a short period of time. In other words, it's just in your arm wherever you got the jab. Uh, but uh, there have been studies since then, including one by Stanford. Stanford researchers that found that uh, no, this spike protein not only remains in the body; it, it travels throughout the body. So there's a different. There's a possible uh, scientific uh, explanation for it.
1: So it's curious that this. Information would be coming from, you know, a funeral home employee, an embalmer, rather than this information coming out, let's say, during an autopsy. Don't you find?
2: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and overpolicing? Is running out. This message is paid for by Lines for Fair and Equitable Policy.
3: Yeah, I it it it, it is, and uh, I I'm I'm not sure, you know, all the I mean, all of the the processes that that they go through uh, in this, but um, but clearly, uh, you know, there there are a lot of people that are not speaking out uh, about this, and and who are afraid to. To bring it up whatever part of the process that they're in
1: right uh, you've seen and you've, I'm, I'm guessing you've seen some of these videos i mean they're everywhere on social yeah. media um i mean can you for those who haven't seen them i mean how do these clots differ from an, uh, i don't know if there's such a thing as an ordinary blood clot but i mean how do they differ
3: yeah so there it's a it's a fibrous white material that you don't typically see and and very thick and and very long, you mentioned the, the high school uh, football player, and it was something like six feet long. Yeah. You know? and, and and that's the length that, that some of these embalmers are seeing.
1: My word, my word. And uh, back in February, I think uh, WND featured a story. This was an embalmer in, was he in Arkansas, Alabama? It was Alabama, yeah, wow. yeah. Tell me about Richard Hirschman.
3: Yeah, Richard Hirschman, he was, I think he was the first one to, Speak out about this. And and he had uh, after experiencing uh, this where where he saw that something like 65 percent of his cases were exhibiting these clots. And he, and he started to call around to people uh, in the industry. and And I think he talked to something like 15 people who were in similar positions and every single one of them, 15 out of 15 said, oh, yeah, we're seeing the same thing.
1: Unbelievable. All right, Art, we're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, uh, I want to dial back to uh, January 6th because, you know, there are still uh, people languishing in prison. Some of them still not have had have not had a court date. And some of them, as it turns out, uh, are being tortured, according to this report. We'll uh, talk about that with Art Moore again, author at WND back with more of our conversation right after these.
0: Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show, News Talk, Saga, 960
1: AM. Okay. So more than a year and a half after the Capitol riots, January 6, 2021. Several hundred people rioted. Yes, parts of the Capitol building were vandalized, but you have many people in, in jail. Still awaiting a court date, again, more than a year and a half later for basically misdemeanor charges, trespassing, posing for a selfie, essentially, in many cases. So there's that. That's bad enough. But then there are also reports of people jailed after the January 6th riot being tortured, tortured. Art Moore stays with us, author at WND, co-author of the best-selling book "See Something, Say Nothing." Art, who's being tortured?
3: Well, I I think you know it's really important to understand um, that there are about eighty people who are, be- and these are all men who are being held, and and this is in pre pre-tri- pre-trial. Uh, and the Constitution of the United States uh, grants or protects the rights of people. Uh, who are accused saying that they have a right to a speedy trial and some cases uh some of these people won't have a trial until two years after having been arrested and and they are you know a lot of people as you described who were there uh because they believed that the outcome of the 2020 election was uh fraudulent and which they have a right to are they right are they wrong that's different Subject we've talked about that other times, but they certainly have a right to and Democrats certainly have protested uh, Republican victories uh, in, in the past. But uh, they they are being held um, in conditions that 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 many people who have visited them describe as, as as like a gulag. They call it the D.C. gulag. And in this case that we're talking about, it was um, this uh, sheriff's deputy who it, it has been there um I think about a year and a half, and uh he was with another um, uh, person being held there and uh they they're they're still required to wear masks uh even though we're long past you know the science on that and uh apparently you know this this sheriff's deputy he 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 took off uh his mask to eat, and for that he was punished by being maced. And he had to 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 stay in that condition for something like eight hours. He wasn't allowed to uh, or given any opportunity to clean himself. And uh, this is all in a context where uh, people like him are are being called insurrectionists. And, uh, you know, the the whole idea of of it being an insurrection uh, is is really laughable, especially in light of the fact that Joe Biden just said a, a couple of weeks ago, that, uh, hey, you know, you guys who are defending the Second Amendment, thinking that it's all about, uh, you know, defending this con- your, your rights, uh, how do you think you're going to do, you know, with your shotgun against uh, uh, nuclear missiles or against an F-15? You know, so the, the idea that, that these largely unarmed people were going to take over the government is laughable. But nevertheless, you, you can see what this is all about is, is marginalizing a whole huge swath of of people politically for political purposes, and, and certainly one of the big uh, objectives is to make sure that uh, Donald Trump never runs for office again. And so, going after his supporters is is a big part of that. But they've created this whole narrative. We talked about it before. You know, the evidence of the FBI informants being there, the Antifa agitators, and it it being um, having the hallmarks of of, of a setup. In order to uh, demonize a whole huge swath of people politically, and and to continue to milk that as as Biden did uh, infamously last week with his speech in which he uh, followed up on his semi-fascist comment and and said that these MAGA Republicans, these people who supported Donald Trump, they are a threat to democracy.
1: Right, and I, I don't know exactly what uh, this individual uh, Ronald colton McBee, Mcabee, sorry ronald colton Maccabee as you say a former deputy sheriff i believe from tennessee um he was at the capitol you know on january 6th now in this story at wnd it says he was uh, maced repeatedly as you said for re- removing his mask to take his medication forced basically he was covered in the spray for eight hours not al- uh, allowed to wash it off or de- decontaminate it and Rinse off his burning skin. Um, it goes on to say that that he actually was uh, while he was at the Capitol building on Jan 6, he was trying to help uh, Roseanne Boyland, who died at the Capitol that day. So, I mean, he was he was administering, I don't know, first aid or something. And and yet he's arrested and now being tortured. I mean, this is just unbelievable.
3: Yeah, it is. And I've, I've seen video of, of this man helping people. And, and clearly, that's what he was doing. And he was trying to warn people. He, he saw how things were, were going in a bad direction and he was trying to tamp things down. And uh, yet, you know, th- th- this is the guy who uh, is, is the recipient of this kind of, of treatment. But I, I, I think you, know, you, you, you can see that uh, in uh, the, this prison, the, the people, the guards there, you know, certainly uh, have, have bought into this, this narrative that, Hey, we're, we're holding people who are akin to terrorists. I mean, these these are people. So, you know, the the, the people uh, accused of jihadic terrorist attacks that people tied to 9-11. Uh, we don't let them out on, on bail. We don't even consider that. And, and and these people are treated the same way that they somehow were trying to take over the government.
1: Right. And uh, Ronald Colton Maccabee's uh, court date, not until September 2023, a year from now. That'll be more than two and a half years after he was arrested for who knows what. It could even be a misdemeanor. We don't know. But um, in the meantime, he's being uh, sprayed repeatedly with mace. Torture. It's torture. Uh, Art, thank you so much. How do we get a copy of See Something, Say Nothing?
3: Sure. Yeah. Best place, I think, is Amazon.com. Type in See Something, Say
1: Nothing. All right, Art, you have a great rest of the week. We'll talk again soon thanks Richard. Art more Wnd Wnd.com Wnd.com you see Google has let up they uh, they were targeting WND they have relented they've backed off so uh, c- continue to support WND. All right when we come back we'll uh, speak with the leader of the new blue party of Ontario the creator of the original acts the carbon tax. Uh, the uh, the Ford government a year ago was defeated. At the Supreme Court, uh, on its objection to the carbon tax. Now, Ontario under Ford is set to dramatically raise the industrial carbon price in a complete and total capitulation. That story is next. Let's rejoin the conversation
0: on the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
1: All right, welcome back. So, I guess it's been about a year since Doug Ford lost his court battle over the federal carbon tax. That was at the Supreme Court. And now, perhaps not surprisingly, Doug Ford has completely capitulated and now is raising the price of carbon for industry under its uh, own emissions program. Uh, In other words, applying the same carbon pricing that he spent years lamenting. Jim Carajalios, leader of the New Blue Party of Ontario, back in 2016, created the original grassroots acts, the carbon tax movement. And uh, I'm guessing, Jim, today you're sitting back and saying, I hate to tell you so uh, that I told you so, but I told you so.
5: Welcome, Jim. So let's, let's clear up some of the history, because we got a little bit of a Mandela effect going on here, where we think that Doug Ford brought in his industrial carbon tax after he lost at the Supreme court. And that's not actually the history. The history is in fact, that he brought in his industrial carbon tax on a deal with Trudeau before the Supreme court even ruled. So he jumped ahead and said, I'm going to cut a deal with my buddy, Justin, I'm going to bring in this industrial carbon tax. And then after the Supreme court ruled, Because Doug knew that they were going to lose the Supreme Court because they threw the case, the argument in court. They threw it. They tossed it. They they gave up. It's kind of like a a fixed baseball game from the 1930s or whenever that was, because they had three legal arguments to make and they conceded two to the Trudeau government. And now here's the sad part. If Pierre Polyev wins, when he wins the conservative leadership, Pierre Polyev says he's going to axe the carbon tax. Let's say there's a day in the future when Pierre Polyev or some conservative leader wins and becomes prime minister and acts as the carbon tax. We will be stuck in Ontario with Doug Ford's industrial carbon tax because he cut a deal with Justin Trudeau. So instead of Pierre Polyev congratulating Doug Ford, endorsing Doug Ford, he should be calling on Doug Ford to get rid of his industrial carbon tax and his corporate welfare scheme. And if Justin Trudeau wants to put it in at the federal level, so be it. But at the very least, we have hope in the future with Doug Ford. We got no hope.
1: I don't want to get in too deep into the legalese. But when you say that he deliberately threw the case, he conceded two of the three legal arguments. Can you just kind of walk us through that in a very basic way?
5: So we don't have t- enough time in this show, but I wrote an op-ed on the National Post and you can find it on newblueontario.com dot com under the in the news section. We're going to make it more prominent because this is going to keep coming up. And I wrote an op-ed, I think, three years ago. And I said uh they're taking the wrong approach in court. They came to court and there were three, there's a three test, uh, a three stage test to make on the constitutionality of the federal government impeding on provincial jurisdiction. Step one, step two, step three. And everyone knows when you go to court, you don't have to be a lawyer to figure it out. You go to court, you argue on every point, the Ford government and the, and the provincial lawyers went to court and said, we agree with the Trudeau government on point one, We agree on point two that carbon pricing is the best way to handle climate change. And it's the only solution for climate change. And then they only argued point three, which was the amount of money they should charge and whether the province or the federal government should do it. So when you're conceding that the only way to handle it is through carbon pricing, you've, you've thrown the case in court. Like it was just an entire, it was entertainment. It was a spectacle that cost us a couple hundred million dollars that went in the pockets of lawyers. He threw the case. They didn't actually try to win. He knew he was going to lose. And before the Supreme Court ruled, he cut a deal with Justin. He put in an Ontario industrial carbon tax and Justin put in the consumer one. So instead of cap and
1: trade where we had one carbon tax in Ontario, Doug gave us two. Uh, which is set to rise. So it's currently $40 per ton that industry emitters have to pay. It's going to go up to 65 per ton in, in two years and then spike at $170 per ton in by 2031. Unless people think, well, that's the industry that's, you know, they're the polluters, let them pay for it. That's going to trickle down. How is that going to affect the price of goods in this province, Jim?
5: Uh, It's going to be an extraordinary impact on consumers who are already being squeezed by uh, inflation Uh, Already being squeezed by the lack of tax relief, Um, PCs haven't given tax relief. Ontario, you haven't had a tax break if you've been living in Ontario for almost three decades because of uh, liberal and PC governments. And uh, people are getting squeezed, take home pay is not rising. And on top of that, you've got this industrial carbon tax that's going to be passed down to the consumer. It's not corporations. That are going to be paying for this it, the the increased taxation as that per ton uh charge goes up will be passed on to consumers like we see at the pump and then if you look at that global news article i was shocked that global news that usually props up the pcs went into so much detail and it's basically a shell game basically i can't even i shouldn't even qualify richard it's entirely a shell game where the provincial government taxes industry passes on the price of the consumer everyday Ontarians, and then the provincial government takes it and then gives it back to certain industries who hire the right lobbyists <laughs> and do what the Trudeau-Ford regime does, like half a billion dollars to some plant in southwestern Ontario. They give it back. So the guys running in the C-suite, they don't care. They're making their half a mil. They pass the cost on to the consumer. And with the other hand, they reach out to the provincial governments, say, give it back to me. It's entirely a shell game, which increases revenues for the Ford PCs, pleases his buddy Justin Trudeau and does nothing for Ontario's economy or for uh, Ontario consumers to make us more competitive and allow people to prosper.
1: So you ran this very successful "ax the carbon tax campaign, grassroots campaign in 2016. Patrick Brown was leader. He was pro carbon tax. Uh, he gets ousted uh, from the party. Doug Ford comes in and now all of a sudden the PC party have embraced the "ax the carbon tax uh, and then he turns around and he does this totally betrays the party uh, and the voters, the grassroots voters. Uh, and then Pierre Polyev uh, steals your slogan. And, and now he's got the acts the the uh, the tax campaign uh, going. What are your thoughts?
5: Well, good for Pierre. I mean, he's finally read the tea leaves on it. I didn't get much support from Pierre Polyev when Patrick Brown and the PC sued me. I didn't get much support from Pierre Polyev. Uh, when they kicked uh, Belinda Carahalios out of caucus, and I didn't get any support from Pierre Polyev when his campaign manager Jenny Byrne and his campaign spokesperson Anthony Koch and his Get Out the Vote chair cons- conspired at a PC convention to help Doug Ford and his staff rig a pre- presidential election campaign against me. But finally, Pierre's on the ballot. He wasn't on the ballot in 2020 when it was scripted for Aaron O'Toole. Now it's going to be Pierre Polyev's party, and he's read the tea leaves and he sees the conservative grassroots want to axe the carbon tax. I don't see a platform on Pierre Polyev's website that identifies how he's going to do it, but he's using the slogan. Good for him. Everybody that follows it, though, knows what it means to axe the carbon tax and what we were pushing for. And he's got to come clean and tell us, is he going to get rid of the carbon tax or just a little bit, just on fuel and heating, maybe kind of, maybe. So instead of endorsing Doug Ford and saying, good job, Doug, on a majority government, Pierre Polyev should be saying, He's going to get rid of the uh, the carbon tax when he's prime minister, and he expects provincial governments like the Ford PCs to also get rid of industrial carbon taxes provincially. That's what he should be doing. That's what we're going to advocate Pierre to do. Maybe he's not getting the right advice by the people running his campaign, but we're going to push him,
1: Richard, to do the right thing. Jim Carajalios, leader of the New Blue Party of Ontario and uh, founder of the original X, the carbon tax campaign back in 2016, NewBlueOntario.com. You can find that article there that you wrote, that op-ed piece. Yes. Excellent. Jim, thank you as always. Thank you. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Declan, and Jacob. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again. God willing, I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.